Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Secrets and Spies. It's Matt here, although you won't be hearing much of me. We have a guest host for today's episode, which is a first for the podcast. My friend and indie spy author Stephen England, who's been on the show a couple times, will be talking with Michael Frost Beckner. Michael is a screenwriter and spy novelist, perhaps best known for his Spy Game trilogy, which was adapted into the 2001 film starring Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. He joins Stephen for a deep dive into that trilogy, his broader career as a writer, and drops some details on books still to come. I hope you'll enjoy their conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. A couple house cleaning notes before we get started. I want to thank all of our listeners who are currently supporting us on Patreon. If you're not currently supporting the show on Patreon, please consider doing so. It's super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Depending on the subscription level you choose, you'll receive a set of secrets and spies coasters or a coffee cup. By subscribing, you'll be directly supporting this podcast and thus we shall remain forever in your debt. Your generosity helps keep this podcast going. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Well, good afternoon, folks. This is Stephen England, and I'm joined here today uh, on the other side of the bright lights here at Secrets and Spies uh, by Michael Beckner. It's an honor to have you here with us today, Michael. Uh, why, don't, why don't you introduce yourself for those who might have been living under a rock and not familiar with your work? <laughs> well, certainly. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I've made my career in, in Hollywood, actually. Uh, spent uh, over 30 years uh, writing uh, movies and, and television. Been very uh, blessed to have a, a robust career at that. Um, I started out, however, it, at uh, the University of Southern California, following my lifelong passion uh, up to that point to be a novelist. And I was fortunate to study under T.C. Boyle, um, uh, a very prolific uh, literary uh, author. And, um, and that all went well. It got time for my thesis and being, uh, I guess, uh, early 20s, um, was faced with the uh, prospect of um, being in my fraternity as the president of my fraternity and having fun my college senior year or writing 400 pages of a novel, uh, you know, uh, double spaced wide margins. And I thought, oh no, this is, I don't have a book in me. So I petitioned to do a master's thesis in screenwriting. USC, which has the vaunted film school, uh, did not at the time have a screenwriting program. Uh, they were specific to training producers and directors, but they had a master's degree in screenwriting um, through the journalism school, I think it was. And so there wasn't uh, an intention to go into Hollywood at the time. It was really kind of cheating. Um, I I knew enough to know that screenplays, you get an F if it's over 
you know, 120 pages <laughs> and the margins are, are very narrow and uh, it's uh, a lot of white space on the pages is a good screenplay. So I thought I'd pulled a fast one. And so I, I wrote a script and got my thesis that way. Um, and then I went into writing publicity for Walt Disney Studios. Um, and it was really, it was the olden days where they'd send to the newspapers and, and whomever um, a publicity kit with, you know, a typed up summary and then black and white photos from the film. My job was to write the caption under the photo. So it would be um, Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear throw Br'er Rabbit into the Briar Patch. <laughs> Copyright Walt Disney Productions, 1950, whatever. And um, anyway, that was that was my job. And I, I wasn't really writing a book or anything else. I was writing screenplays. I did I did realize that I liked it and I was I was fairly good at it. And and uh, so I put the novel thing aside. Um and in a very odd way, I came to Barry Levinson, uh, the director of Rain Man, um, and many, many other things. I came to his attention on a film called Tin Men because my other job in the still department was the 35 millimeter still film that came off the set. My job was to um, make sure Richard Dreyfuss's eyes were open, you know, uh, Danny DeVito wasn't cropped out of the picture, Barbara Hershey didn't look strange. Anyway, as a, a, a chimp could do the job, really, but um, I was the chimp, and, and so I'd send the, that back to the set. Well, for some reason, he really liked the photos I chose. I became his writing assistant uh, on Good Morning Vietnam and then Rain Man, and his partner, a gentleman named Mark Johnson, um, knew that I had ambitions as a screenwriter, and he said, you know, you can use all our facilities, all the time, do the screenwriting thing. And all we ask is to look at, look at whatever you write. And um, very encouraging. And, and I worked there and made my way up there. Um, I sold a, a script called Sniper. They, they made it into a film with Tom Berenger and Billy ah, Zane. Yes. I think they just made the release the 10th one um, a <laughs> nice. few weeks ago. They keep making these movies, which is, it's, it's wonderful. Um, the, Anyway, what it had been kind of funny because I'd written a bunch of more Barry Levinson-esque scripts, you know, while I was under there. I figured, you know, give them something like they do. And they passed and passed and they didn't really prefer them and they didn't think I was doing a very good job, I think. Um, so this one, since it was sort of brutal and about Marine snipers in Panama, I just didn't want to embarrass them and embarrass me. And 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 I just... I. I so I put it aside. Um, I got, I was on my honeymoon and I get a call from the studio, TriStar Pictures at the time. And uh, they said, we just read your script and we're buying it. And what a great gift it was. I go, how did you get it? Well, Mark Johnson brought it in. And I'm like, oh <laughs> man. And so I called him. He goes, yeah, I was uh, in your office. I was looking for some, some coverage and I found this script and I loved it and we're buying it. We're making it. So get home from your honeymoon and we're going to make the, the film. Anyway, that started my screenwriting career. Um, and so I didn't really go back to the novel thing uh, for quite a while. Um, I got pigeonholed. It was about the time that uh, a lot of the uh, money from Japan and, and international money was coming into Hollywood, Canada um, and, uh, and Europe. And they were making these mini, uh, mini studios like Caracol Pictures and 
Largo and, and these, these mini majors, they called them. Um, it was also after a writer's strike and I hadn't been in the guild, so I wasn't in the union. So I was allowed to write. Um, and I, I lucked out again and it was in the heyday of spec scripts, original spec scripts that aren't an adaptation, aren't taken from a magazine article. And I was very uh, fortunate to write three in a row, one year after the next, after the next, and broke all the records, tied, tied records for the highest selling screenplays of all time. So suddenly, whether I'd wanted to be a novelist or anything else, I was a screenwriter. And um, those were, it was the time of like Lethal Weapon and that sort of thing. And so a lot of what I was doing was action comedies, doing a lot of uh, uh, rewrites on those for all the studios. Um, and I got a little offended when I think Lethal Weapon 3 or something came my way. And I, they said, you know, we need you to punch up the action here. And I looked at it and I'm like, this thing's wall-to-wall -wall action. That's not the problem <laughs> with this at all. <laughs> the problem here is this isn't, there's no uh, relationship to reality of how human beings are. This is just wacky nonsense and it doesn't make sense. Nothing anyone's saying makes sense in conversation. So I said, you need a character read, right? And they said, um, you're the action guy. Do not touch the characters. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I got really offended by that. Uh, and so I said, I, you know, I'm going to write why. a character thing. Yeah. So that led me to Spy Game. Awesome. And yeah. it had been, Spy Game had been the novel I was going to write. And I'd been working on it all these years. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to lop off the last third of this book and write it as a, as a spec screenplay, which I did. And that was the film. Uh, that became Spy Game. Um, because it wasn't an action movie, there was, Warner Brothers wanted to buy it and wanted me to make it, you know, all about uh, ticking clocks and, and running and jumping with guns. And I passed on that. And then Beacon Pictures took it. And they didn't have a lot of money. Um, they weren't a distributor, but they said, we're going to make your, your film. And... Um, so the only thing I asked for, I said, well, you can make the film of this script and that's it. I keep the characters. I keep the world. I, I keep the rest of, they didn't want to buy the manuscript. Um, and, and they, they just wanted the script. So that was the deal. And so that allowed me in my own teeny tiny itsy bitsy George Lucasy way to keep <laughs> all the rights. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and then, the, and then it went from there and, the, and then, um, you know, I just took those when I when I got with my career in film where I was fairly kind of done with it. I, I moved into television and um, and that's a lot to, in, in, in film. It's sort of fire and forget. You're the writer. If you do a good job, your, your job's done before camera rolls in TV. You do all of it. You hire the actors, you hire the director each week, you run the writer's room. And, and I did that for 10 years on on various shows, my own. Um, show the agency at CBS was, was sort of the high point of it. Although I, I did. Yeah. So I've got, I've there. got a question. I've got a question or two yeah. here to add, to ask you about that as we get into talking about the books, but yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. So the, at the end, that's what it did it, around COVID or maybe the year before I, I took out the spy game manuscript. That first part was Muir's Gambit. So I uh, wrote that. Yes. Then I jumped over and wrote Bishop's Endgame and Aiken and check. Uh, following okay. um, and another yeah. book at the same time called Berlin Mesa. And that's yeah. kind of where 
where you meet me now. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, an interesting history. Obviously, Spy Game has long been a classic of the genre. It's one of my uh, favorite spy films, and I think that's true for a lot of other uh, a lot of other spy fans. Uh, Charles Beaumont, in his uh, spy spyberry interview just the other day, mentioned it as one of his uh, favorite spy films. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I was very. That was very kind to hear that. I was. I was quite quite humbled uh, to hear that from him. His book was amazing. It, uh, it really meant a lot to hear that. Yeah. So to talk about, uh, to talk about your books that uh, kind of broaden out uh, the spy game universe, I was very interested when I first picked them up because uh, naturally I had a lot of memories of the, of the film. And I was thinking that uh, it probably would be, would be focusing on the viewpoints of like either like, Murr, Nathan Murr, Tom Bishop, something like that, and I, I read, I started reading into. I'm like, wait, Aiken, Aiken, who, who's Aiken? <laughs> and so, I'd be interested in you talking a bit about your choice of, uh, of Aiken as the narrator, because in a lot of ways, he's not so much a traditional uh, spy novel protagonist. I think, I think a lot of authors would have gone for a. Nathan Murr, Tom Bishop as kind of the central uh, storyteller, but you you focused on Russell Aiken, who he's played in uh, he's played by Todd Boyce in the film. It's a very very small part, uh, but he really comes into his own in these books. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Okay. So so with that script, because that first part of the of the manuscript was never included in the script. It didn't make sense to give Aiken the role that he'd had in Mirror's Gambit in the film. That was an easy thing to cut out of the film. And also it gave me, I also did it because I wanted to preserve that. I didn't want to give that away at all or give anything away. The reason I chose to do to focus that, uh, the books, on Russell Aiken uh, is because, you know, with, with Spy Game, and it was like my conversation with, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura at Warner Brothers back in the day, I did not want this to be a classic spy running and jumping, save the world thing. My interest really uh, lay in at the time and, and lies in the human condition of spies mm, yes. and spying. And, and we, we can go into that, my relationship with them. And I, I've had a long relationship with a number of people that have worked in that field. Muir being based on someone I knew since my childhood. He's based on a lot of things, but the one main guy. Um, I wanted to take it from a different point of view, um, looking at espionage. Um, if we're getting rid of the cut the red wire or the blue wire or or each book, you got to save the world. Um, there's a lot better authors that write that a lot better than I do. Um, in, in my literary career, I'm much more interested in the human condition and this and and espionage has a real nice entry into that because the human condition of trying to meet a moral stance and find a moral place um, within what you do and within yourself, um, you know, the quest for for meaning and the divine, not necessarily, a named God or a Christian God or a, any other religion God, but the divine in life. Um, that's kind of what I'm interested in. Espionage is nice because the, the boundaries are so blurred. They're, they're yes. entirely blurred. You have 
you're sanctioned to do things that are legal for your country, but are certainly absolutely illegal everywhere else. And, and um, just because your country says so gives you the right is kind of interesting and gives you the justification and the morality. Um, we see in, you have to take a James Bond, they're running around, they get their orders from, uh, from headquarters and they go run around the world doing all these things, breaking all sorts of international law and, and they do it and they save the world and that's terrific. Um, but there certainly has to be laws that guide them within their own thing. And that's where I came to Russell Aiken. Um, and I always found it fascinating um, talking with the people that I knew in that business of how an operation is planned, what parameters it has within our own government with the C working with the CIA um, and what legal hurdles it has and everything else and how that's subverted or uh, stuck to. And, and um, you know, you can do this and you can't do that. Um, I thought he was kind of a nice, a nice perspective we hadn't seen before. Who's the yeah. damn lawyer who papers these deals? You know, who's the guy that's doing it and what is that doing to him? Um, and, and so that's why I wanted to take that. Also, you know, it gives a nice balance then between Muir and Bishop. And we can see them doing their thing. He Aiken's kind of holding judgment on them, and he has his own personal hang-ups about the two men um, that the book explores. Um, but he's also entirely wrapped up in why they're doing what they're doing and what they're doing. He certainly can't just wipe his hands and say, Oh yeah, I don't approve of that, or they didn't follow those rules. And he he's part of it. He he's part of it. I found that interesting. It goes back to I have a, a real, it's mentioned in Mears Gambit, Aiken mentions it, um, a real fondness for Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, which is a mm. which is a spy novel. It's definitely <laughs> about espionage during the French Revolution, British espionage, and and um and the character of Sidney Carton, um who's the drunk lawyer who ends up, you know, becoming the, the hero, the, the, the hero of it, but he certainly starts as an anti-hero. Um, and so Aiken sort of shares a little bit with, with him and, um, about personal responsibility and, 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 um, ultimately with, by the third book, you know, is it following your heart or, or love of country or, or, or love? which is the the question in the third book. But that's that's kind of the way to do the way I wanted to do it and that way I can balance both off it. Um also his own set of problems and his own way of looking at things and the and and what he wants from Mirren and, and Bishop and what they want to draw out of him what they need from him really was the last point of a pyramid that makes it makes these things not just a there's the handler and there's the uh asset and they're running and jumping and, and running missions, which yeah. again, other people and, do better than I do. And and then you have Aiken, who's tasked with trying to make everything that they, all the illegal things they do, legal. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, and um and, and how he lives with himself with that. Yeah, yeah. It's a fast. It's a really fascinating perspective in the books. There's so much about Aiken's perspective that I I and I found myself reflecting on this as I as I read further into the series thinking that in a lot of ways there's there's a lot of aspects of the book that as I'm reading it I think to myself this shouldn't work but it does <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a great tribute to your to your writing and all that you accomplished with the books because it really does come together 
in a way that uh, I, I described it at the end of uh, reading the second book as a bit of a kaleidoscopic effect, which that then takes on a special significance in the third book that I didn't even realize when I made those comments. But we'll, we'll let readers uh, figure some of that out for, <laughs> for themselves. Uh, but it's very interesting in the way that toward the end of a book, all of a sudden, it's like the kaleidoscope gets shifted and you look back on the book like, oh, everything just took on a new light. And some of that is the circumstances themselves. Some of that is Aiken's ability to perceive them uh, because he goes through a lot of kind of interesting uh, uh, mental and uh, even physical challenges through the series. Uh, if you'd like to talk a bit more about his uh, his state of mind, as it were. Yeah. Okay. Well, his state of mind is, is he's, is quite an oddball. I think <laughs> Mir says that about him when he's an oddball, he's, um, he really, oh boy. Well, his, it is a kaleidoscope and it does shift in that way as life does for, for people all the time. He, um, he, a lot of times leads with the absolute, if he says something real quick and makes the decision very fast, uh, Unlike a James Bond, who the God, that was a good quick decision. It's usually the wrong decision with him. And I think we all can 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 live with that. We all know that uh, you know those rash decisions usually lead you in the wrong way. It is. It's a world of he's living in a world where everything is about deception. Deception is how you survive, and he's trying to be honest to himself. And so that's that first shift of the kaleidoscope. Where does um, in in a world where everyone is sanctioned to lie and is lying, where do you fit in? He's he's the one who writes that. He's trying not to take the work home, as he as I believe puts it at one point. Yeah, but who doesn't take their work home when they go home? <laughs> I mean, who yeah. doesn't? And and yeah. so he's living with that in in a higher stakes environment than the rest of us. Um, I think with the second, it's not really a spoiler because you know I'm by by the first few pages, but he has. He's dealing then with a skewed perception in the second book from a medical condition, um, and uh, uh, and that then puts his. So we've dealt with in the first book, if you live a life of lies, what what is really your truth? And and he's struggling with that through that first one. And and you know he's such a. <laughs> He, he's kind of a whiner in that first book because he's like, why are you guys always lying to me? Man. But he realizes that's the world they work in. And dude, you're doing it to you're you're doing it yourself. You're doing it with your wife. You're doing it with, with the people you love. And you've got to get, you got to get right with that. Well, the second one then deals with identity. And he has a, a medical condition where his own perception of reality and identity becomes a little confused. And so that shifts that, that lens again, that we look at his view. He, he always grows through it, but he's always thinking everyone else has got all the problems and he's just trying to uh, patch holes in the boat. Um, it's looking at all these other people's struggles with identity. If you live a false identity, and that's your job as a spy, you're presenting yourself as a false identity. But if you're living that, say, 23-7, that's your identity. And isn't that as real and, and defining of who you are as a man or a woman? And so all the characters deal with that as he's, he's narrating it, looking at it, and trying to see this struggle for identity. Um, 
and and it reflects back on him and his own identity is crumbling because of a, a medical condition. He's actually losing his own identity. By the third book, it takes the the idea of false reality and and the life of lies this of the first book. The second book, um, false identity and appearance is reality because you're you're setting that up. And then looks at okay, that's how you you relate. Your job is about information. Then it, and it, and it looks at in the third book this theft of information, stealing information, trying to get information, but in inform, information physics. And the and the third book goes into the Office of Technical Services and how you know you don't just get given the keys to the car that have the defibrillator because oh my gosh you're going to get poison on your hand and have a heart attack, but you got a defibrillator in your car. That's not how it works. Really, when they need something operational for the field, it goes through, you got to identify what that need is going to be and what you're looking at, what you want to spy on. Then what do you want? You got to give that to the people in the scientific department. What's the magic wand you need? And they got to figure out a way to make that magic wand. And then what is it? So that's where the third book goes. But what we realize, and, and what is I think is a, is a truth, is the way you get information and take information and process information is is marred and impacted by your by your perspectives, your identity, your what you are. The person receiving information colors that information immediately once he touches it with his own place. So in the third one, Aiken's perception again changes. And, and so in the third one, his, his medical condition has changed it organically from what happened to him before. And it gives him another perspective on sort of his reality and, and, and the theft of information and, and how they're stealing secrets. And um, that's for Aiken. Muir and Bishop really need to be the spies that we follow. Um, to do the spy story stuff, Aiken's mm. not, you know, Aiken gets dragged <laughs> into it each time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a li- little bit where some of the humor in the book yeah. uh, comes through. Part, partly because he always wanted to be Bishop. I mean, he he, yes. wa- he started out wanting to be the guy in the field, and then he gets pigeonholed off to the Office of General Counsel. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and I think I think with that with a can I think we can all relate to that. We all wish we were the hero in our own stories and 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 it takes us a long time to realize that we really are the hero of the story. We just the our heroism and the things that we do heroically are small victories. We're not going to be bishop, but but bishop is the person that relies on us. The bishops in our life. They always rely on us. And and that's kind of what Aiken ha- that's what Muir and Bishop are driving Aiken towards. Accept who you are because you're our hero. You're the guy, you're the guy that keeps it all together. We can't do it. We, we need you. And yeah. um, boy, but he fights against that throughout. And, um, <laughs> and, and that yeah. makes the books. That makes the drama. Um, I was going to say another thing about Aiken. The other thing that I did, which is different from screenwriting, obviously I'm, I'm, it's all prose. The the movie plays in your head. It's not going to have actors interpret it and that sort of thing. But it's also Aiken is telling these stories in first person, and they're all documents. And one of the thing with Aiken, because he he really is in three ways is losing his mind throughout this. Um, 
his document, the documents themselves, he's trying to protect himself with how he's writing, writing them, especially in the third book, which is a confession. He doesn't want that confession to get to the CIA and them to think he's selling them out. He's thinking if this all goes wrong, so that that book is embedded with codes. Most of my time was spent, I don't know anything about, I don't do crossword puzzles. I, I'm glad in the airplane when they're already half filled out. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but he does, he's, he's, he's obsessed with puzzles and codes. I spent so much time learning about codes and, and symbolism and, um, uh, and, and, and how to do that because he writes these in there. He has so many peculiarities of language so that there'll be a place. If you read in the book, you'll go, why did Beckner choose that word? There's a weird, <laughs> and you look it up, you go, oh, that, that, that's the word. That does mean what it is, but God, yeah. he could have told that much more easily. Well, it's most likely because Aiken in the writing it, and I had to do it, and it was very difficult work, has that word, maybe it, it starts with a K and ends with a V. Well, that means he's been writing no Ks or Vs until that moment. Uh, that they made in the alphabet. There are so many. So, so that's, that's part of the thing as well. He is, Aiken is also, there's a subtext of these books that he is writing a code. The second book, there's a crossword puzzle he, he keeps talking about. Um, the very first one, all the clues of that crossword puzzle are built into the object that uh, he, he gets, the object in there. You can do that crossword puzzle if you figure out the math of the, of the little, <laughs> wow. of the thing. So it it is. It, I really wanted to get his voice down, and in getting his voice, I had to create these uh, things. When he's nervous, he'll write in palindromes. I don't know if anyone's ever noticed that, but you know, he he goes on and on with those. Um, and and that was just you know, I was tired of writing interior, exterior, clump of dialogue, get them across the set, clump of dialogue, and so that was kind of the joy of of writing these books was also going kind of full meta with them and making Aiken be the voice of the books. It's much easier now with the new trilogy, which is Muir. Oh, very interesting. Which I don't have to do any of that crap. He's very straightforward and, and his voice is it's much easier to write. <laughs> yeah, that, that gets to a question I was going to ask you later, which was on further uh, plans for the, the broader spy game universe. But I wanted to ask as well uh about the influence uh Murr is uh is in his uh official or public role he's a philosophy professor at Princeton and I wondered if you'd be interested in talking a bit about that and a, a bit about the influences of philosophy on the series because it it it's another one of those things that kind of permeates uh your writing I mean Murr's code name is Prometheus uh the after the Greek legend of the man who stole fire from the gods and uh, be interested in hearing your perspective on that aspect of Muir's personality. Yeah, Muir is a professor, and and you, you don't get much of it. You don't get that in the film, except that he's wearing kind of professorial clothes, the uh, houndstooth with the elbow patches, and, and and he looks like a lot of my professors. The, um, yeah, he his job when he's not running operations is is recruiting, and and he he teaches philosophy and mythology. Part of it is, is because that's what my d other degree was in. I got a master's in screenwriting and an undergraduate degree in philosophy. So I, I, I'm fascinated by it. I think when you're dealing in this gray world of, of espionage and, and what they're tasked to do, and a lot of times they're also, 
you know, spies are, are, aren't tasked to save the entire world. They're tasked one piece of, of a larger puzzle. And they many times don't know what that is. I think for Muir, having that more philosophical bent allows him to do what he has to do. Muir does some um, horrible things. I mean, maybe they they move policy very well, but he's the guy that has to do the bad shit. Right. Um, right. And so he so he is dedicated. His mind is dedicated to really the philosophy and the ethics um, behind these things and why we do what we do and what the meaning is. Um, deception and reality, and you know, you can go. With, I don't think we talk about it in the books, but, you know, Plato's cave and we're seeing images projected behind us. Well, isn't that metaphorical for sort of the spy game? We're we're seeing shadows, but we don't actually know what's casting the shadow uh, behind us. And it's Mirror's job to turn around and find out what the hell's casting that shadow. <laughs> so it seems yeah. that espionage and philosophy do pair up fairly nicely. Um, yeah. Mythology as well, um, because everything people behave in narrative forms from the very earliest way the mind works in recognizing patterns to creating stories. We're, we're, we're a, a species that's story-based. And so again, um, in espionage, you're not trying to, to find the body and prove the murder. So you don't got that to, to make it easier for you. You're, you're looking at something much more esoteric. You're looking at intelligence, trying to find someone else's intention so what you're trying to do is piece together a story. And mythologies are all the basic building blocks of storytelling. So Muir is an expert at mythology because he needs to figure out what is the story that I'm jumping into the middle of when I steal this piece of information, when we have this political crisis in Cyprus between the, what is the story that they're operating on? Why you have the um, Cypriot Greeks and the Turks, what, what are they battling at? It gets back two basic stories of their fundamental societies. And so Muir finds a deep resonance with philosophy and, uh, and mythology. Aiken do study in law and study in law, a lot, a lot of good undergraduate law students study philosophy. And so he, he got to it, not because he, he sees himself as some kind of philosopher. It, it's good for building logical arguments, studying philosophy, you study a lot of logic. And mm -hmm. and that's where his thing, and that's where he and Muir crossed earlier when he yeah. was a pre-law student and, and and had to take philosophy courses. Yeah, and was recruited as showing a Doctor Strange Love, which is one of my favorite uh, films of that era. So I I enjoyed that detail. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, the uh, um, I've I've collected a lot of very strange recruitment stories uh, from people in the, in that worked with the CIA and some other, other uh, things. People get recruited in strange ways to do strange jobs. Um, it wasn't till uh, I was never recruited because I didn't sign anything, but I did spend a lot of time working. You know, I, I realized looking back, well, dude, if you're going back and forth to Langley, this is in the nineties, once or twice a month to talk to people who want, who are real interested in the Hollywood and movie thing they aren't that interested really. They're interested in you doing something for them. And it took me a while to realize, I thought I was really clever and I'd gotten my way in the door. Um, yeah, Michael Wagner didn't pick the lock to the CIA. They they got me in there and, and um, I met a lot of wonderful people. I have a lot of lifelong friends that have informed a lot of what I've written in my books. Um, but it's, it is the stories they, they tell 
in 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 Mary's Gambit, the I embellish it a bit, but really the story with the claustrophobia of um, mm, Russell yeah. Aiken and that thing, I got that from I got that, and then one that was the same story, but it had to do with a phobia of spiders that uh, an officer had had been put through. They put him through the ringer with their own phobias, and and uh, I thought that was really really uh, quite interesting, and it made its way into the book. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking uh, further along the philosophy mythology uh, bit, I was, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking that I think one of the things that's kind of drawn me to your work since Spy Game, and it, it's true of this trilogy is of books as well, uh, but I think, I think you capture very well the sense of the tragic in, in the spy business in a way that I think a lot of the more uh, pop culture, uh, presentations of the spy game as it were uh don't really touch on i mean you have that uh you have that moment in uh, spy game where in lebanon where the doctor goes in to uh to treat the militia leader and uh, little does anyone know uh, particularly bishop that it's going to it's going to coincide uh that doctor's visit is going to coincide with a Christian a Lebanese militia deciding to uh, simply blow up the doctor with a car bomb, and there's an there's an interesting there's an interesting sense of the unintentional tragic in a lot of uh, in a lot of what you portray that I think does uh, reflect real life quite well. But it also kind of harkens back to those Greek tragedies and how how they would unfold. Uh, what your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, life is is about avoiding those unavoidable things, and we never do. I think in in the business there these characters are in, you're confronted with larger tragedies every day. There's a, also a part in, in I think Muir's telling Aiken about unintended consequences. Something about well, he he has to he gets a guy to kill himself, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's basically he says to to Aiken he says you know you just wouldn't be good at this because you don't think to the thing of by doing that, I may be screwing up a thousand other lives that are innocent that aren't even attached to this operation. Yes. And in the field, you got to be the guy that says I'm okay with that. Um, and, and so that's sort of the sense of it all, it all repercusses off. Everything has, has cause and effect. And I've known a number of officers that couldn't deal with that. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny. Redford didn't want to do, Oh, those were real marriages. He threw in the thing at the very end. Oh, let's say they're cover wives. A lot of people, it's not cover wives. They, yeah. they can't keep their relationships. Um, the alcoholism in it is I've met a lot of recovered alcoholics who, um, and a lot of alcoholics who, who work in that business. There is, you're dealing with tragic circumstances. I remember an officer telling me um, that one thing that they really, that really affected them was they were moving back to Langley. They were, their tour was done and they're getting on an airport. They were called and they said, don't get on that plane. Why? Um, we think that plane is going to um, have a terrorist event. Oh, are we doing anything about it? No, we're not. And it didn't, no one died. The plane didn't blow up, but she said, she said, you know, the worst thing was is thinking I can't tell anyone. I'm, I'm, I can't tell anyone and I'm not going to take the plane. I'm not stupid. Yeah, um, exactly. 
And, and that's the kind of thing that you take home at night. And that's the kind of thing that eats at you. That's the kind of thing that why Aiken couldn't, you know, he gets in the field a couple of times and does, does a bang up job, but why he couldn't do it all the time. He's too sensitive. And, um, and a lot of, a lot of spies portrayed in, in really popular genre fiction, they are prided on not being sensitive at all and they can deal with it. The, you know, I'm not, I, I wrote, I wrote that in movies and a lot of rewrites for a lot of films um, where, you know, that's the heroic guy and that's fun. And we like that in our movies. We like that kind of hero, but um, these heroes are, are more tapped into that sense of the tragic and, um, and God, you know, the mission today, that's really the good mission. Um, you know, Bishop, Bishop deals with it the best because he doesn't he he doesn't dwell on it. He assassinates against spy spy game and and you know he it opens in that Vietnam scene that assassination he does this, the sniper uh, sequence right you know that yeah. ripples back over and over in the stories in the, in the Muir trilogy which I'm writing now and that goes the first book anyway that goes back to sort of the minute Muir leaves Langley at the end of Spy Game and then covers the next ten years. I gave myself some space there. So kind of the space between the movie and Bishop's Endgame. That's right. In that space. Yeah, and nice. and like these books do, they they fold back to past events. So it's it's what was Mir doing the rest of the time in Vietnam and in that mm. period. Um excellent. And that goes back to to the guy who who I based the basic framework of Mir on. That's what he was doing with the CIA in in Laos and, and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll touch on on that in the book but that event for bishop in the spy game you know ripples and what it was really about and what it really caused and 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 what happened and, and the books go into that in in aiken and check and, and mirrors gambit and bishop's endgame bishop lives with it because you know what the the set of orders i got and what it was about at the time and what i was told that's what i did and i can live with that okay it was about something else it meant something else. it's not my business that's who I am. Um, and Bishop, so Bishop is more of that and always remains more of that sort of James Bond character who's able to just do it, not worry about it. You know what? If it was about something else, no one told me I, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. He, he can compartmentalize much better than Aiken. Much better. And that's why Muir put him in the yeah. field because he needs to be able to do that. There's a great there's a great quote in one of the books. I'm, I can't recall which, exactly which one it is now, but uh, there's a great great quote from Aiken. He says, good intentions have led to more disasters in my life than I care to count. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think I think there's a I think that's another aspect that's not always touched upon in the genre a lot is that something terrible happening does not actually have to be a deliberate choice by some villain. Uh, sometimes it's just people groping in the dark, trying to do their best and uh, partly succeeding or sometimes failing utterly. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's what I write to that, that said it very well. And because, you know, it, it's, uh, they were sitting me down once and they were, they were talking about, how they recruit. I don't know if they were kind of pitching me, but they basically said, you know, we don't, we, we only hire patriots and we're doing patriotic stuff. We hire the best of the best, best good people. Um, and, and that's why they like, always liked my work at Langley is because my characters, they're not bad guys. No. They just maybe make some bad choices and, and, and see things a little bit different than what the greater good might be. 
or the greater good for us is not a greater good for someone else. Um, and, and they don't. And, and so it's not that. So you slip into the gray and, and you slip. They talked about a, the sliding scale of, and I, and I go into it in Mears Gambit, of we recruit white hats. There's the, these guys, the people we recruit are all wearing white hats. We make sure they're white hatted. And we don't put them in places where they're going to be doing black deeds. That's not what, what we do. But what happens is, as you get better at it, you get more challenge, uh, challenging assignments and operations, you step into the gray. And you have to know that when you go home, you put the white hat back on. But occasionally, people go into the gray, and then that gray becomes white. And then so well, the middle that was gray has moved, slid right down into a bit of black. And that's now the middle ground. And you have to watch yourself to never let that sliding scale be all black, but you're looking at, you know, your end is black, but you're calling it white. And that's how, how, how it, people get corrupted in it and, and go astray and, and do bad things. But no one's intending to, to take over, you know, there, there's no Dr. Evils, you know, it's just people, their intentions are maybe, you know, there's a little more greed than they want to admit. Um, there's more and it's, it, it, it's, again, it's, it's then the moral and the philosophical that you have to wrestle with, um, at all levels. Yeah. As I think, as I think most of us know from our day-to-day lives, it's always easy to find someone you can point to and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Exactly. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that the truth? And, and so it's a nice canvas to paint on in the world of espionage because there's so much latitude to find moments like that. You know, the guys, Harker and the characters on the seventh floor, you know, they're not buffoons. You know, I I catch them on the day they're acting like idiots, but they (laughs) wouldn't have that job if they weren't qualified for the job. And, and, um, but people sometimes make mistakes and act like idiots. And, and, and it's so I try and have sympathy for all the characters as well. Even the characters that are truly villains in, in the story. Um, in the stories, they, you got to give them some sympathy because they're not, no one sets out to be an arch villain. I, I, you know, in the day, I guess some people do, but that's, <laughs> you know, then the, you got 10 stories and, you know, if you want to keep writing stories, you got to find the person that didn't set out to be the arch villain and the person that didn't set out, um, that that's comfortable with not saving the world every time they go to work. You're just saving a little bit of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was very interested as I was thinking back. I rewatched Spy Game after finishing Murr's Gambit, and I was interested thinking about it in the context of these books, because you have Murr's Gambit, or you have Spy the film Spy Game comes out in uh, the tail end of two thousand one. Another big espionage uh, film that com- that came out just I think a little slightly less than a year year later was the adaptation of the Bourne Identity. And it was interesting as I thought about it. Uh, I've actually rewatched that film with my wife uh, not too many months ago. And as I was thinking about it, I was struck by the fact that both of those stories at their core are Vietnam War stories. But when The Born Identity was brought to film, that was all stripped away. It was modernized. It was brought into the present day, as it were which was not at all what you did with Spy Game. And I'm, I'm kind of curious because there's a lot of emphasis in our genre on kind of writing ripped from the headlines uh, stories that are kind of 
uh, what's what's coming next, as it were. And you've done you've done a fair bit of that as well. We can talk about uh, your work with the agency with that TV series, but with the film Spy Game and then with this trilogy of books that surrounds it, you're writing more period pieces. And I, I'd be interested if if you uh, share your thoughts on kind of the differences between writing those two uh, those two styles, those two approaches to this genre. Yeah, the uh, Spy Game wasn't intended as a period piece because it took let's see how many years, five years to, to five or six years to get made. When I'd originally done it, um, the intention was Paul Newman and Robert Redford and the, which it would have been great, would have been fabulous. And Paul Newman got Robert Redford and then backed out and said, I'm not doing this. This I'm too, way too old for this. Um, and so, and he said, I'd rather see Bob do the mere role than the Bishop role. If it had happened that way, the books wouldn't work at all. So I'm perfectly happy that it didn't happen <laughs> that way. But that shows you it was it was a number of years before the film was made. What gotcha. Tony did was he said, because the studio, Universal, um, who got, was distributing it, they weren't involved in the development until the very end. They became the distributor with Beacon, and they had their say on a number of things. Um, and they were really wanted it. Okay, let's move it out of Vietnam and, and, and update it. And Tony Scott said, no, the script is this way and I get this and I'm doing Beckner's script. Um, and, uh, and so it stayed that way. Uh, the agency, I wrote a lot of contemporary stuff and, and, um, even back to sniper, you know, TriStar pictures held it up because they said, we, we don't have Marines in Panama. We, we, we don't have what, what's going on here. And I said, this is, <laughs> you know, give it eight months and we're going to invade <laughs> Panama. What are you talking about? I've always been real good at, at, at looking at the trends. I didn't want to do that because then too much of your time is spent on the politics of a situation and, and um, trying to ride that crest of the wave. And I'm more comfortable doing that in television and, and film where there's an immediacy to it. In, in writing a book, I, I really would rather it sit in a world where we kind of know where the world went. We kind of know the events. I like to dig out secrets of past events we don't know and, and, and put those in my, in my books. That becomes um, particularly and, fascinating in Bishop's Endgame, but I don't want to spoil that story for readers. But. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, some weird things came together with that. That was, that was very odd. That's why I put the acknowledgments at front, because it was such an odd thing that came together that made that story coalesce. And then then tying the time period, um, and that takes place in May of, of 2001. Um, that did work out. And, but again, it doesn't really go about what happens in September. It's, it doesn't really go there. Um, it just has that as a, as a backdrop. I, I want to avoid um, the where was I that day, you know, that that happened kind of stuff. Yes. Um, and I want to really talk, uh, you know, look at characters dealing with something that we have some context to. We have some context and see how did these people deal with that and the moral questions they were confronted with and the ethical questions and, you know, life in, in that thing. So that's why I kind of, with the books, you know, I, I give nice slices of Mears Gambit has a lot of Cold War stuff. I, I think people... Um, get a go wow i didn't really know that was happening then and 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 does that but you know it's it's more to let the characters breathe and 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 get to know these people and you know for, for aiken and Muir, 
you know, their their own uh, interpersonal relationships with with their wives are, you know, I think much more dramatic than than saving the world and stuff. And I think that my readers, I I'm writing to people that really want to reflect about, uh, you know, we all have interpersonal relationships and 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 maybe get some back and forth metaphorically with my books on on how we deal with interpersonal yeah. relationships and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm yeah. interested in that. Yeah, I thought it was very fascinating how you handled all that in Bishop's Endgame. It's probably my favorite book of the series, though. I, I enjoyed them all. But that one was uh, that one was particularly striking, as you think of the time in which it's set and uh, all everything else that was going on, plus all the history that you wove into it. It was uh, quite good. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is the good pivot point in the series um, because I've set up a set of rules of how the books are going to be with Muir's, Muir's Gambit. And so much of that, I mean, that's an, a, a debriefing in a sense. So yeah. there's not any present action, really. There's a murder investigation or a couple murder investigations uh, for present action, but that's the debriefing. Then you get you get the spy story with Bishop's Endgame, but you get it through my storytelling lens. And I'm able to do what I want to do while giving uh, readers that, you know, the spy the spy story, the Bishop spy story that... that um, people love and and I love those as well. That's the one that would make the best movie, I imagine. Um and then with Aiken and Check, um I've earned the right to go really a little bit more deeper into what I really like and physics and philosophy and um and deep character. Um and and the absurdism. I I, I find a lot of what I've I've dealt with in in my intersection with espionage. There's a strange absurdity to it. And, and yeah, so that book's yeah. kind of that, that's that's another thing I wanted to touch on. I noticed uh, recently that uh, Aiken and Check was uh, was ranking quite highly on the the rankings of Amazon of for absurdist fiction, and I I was struck that you had categorized it that way. And yet I think it, it makes sense because there is a there is an absurdity to this business that uh, you capture well. Yeah, well, you know what's kind of funny is in choosing those rankings, um, it was. That was the third or fifth. I think there was 10, and that was way down the list. I tried to sell that book as straight espionage, international mystery, all those things. But I guess however Amazon works, they found that. And I did down the, the you know, way down on the thing, put absurdism, because it is somewhat, it's more a Kurt Vonnegut book than a, I think, a Le Carre type book or a, or a Ian Fleming. It's, it's, it's more that. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I can see that. That's just how the how the algorithm there is, has worked out. But now I look at it, and it's like, well, why can't it be ranked in espionage at all? It's not now. It's kind of, it's movie tie-in. I get that they rank rank. You know, these are based on a movie and movie characters. That that works. But then it's two categories of absurdism, which I think is well, it's absurd. I think it should be considered an espionage book. But uh, yeah, for but sure. it's selling well. I'm very happy with that book. That that book is is really took the most effort and took the most thought and has the most thought in it. Um, but again, it is the third book of a trilogy. If you haven't read the first two, it, I think it's probably not, not something to just pick up and read. It's pretty weighty. For, for sure. Yeah. Thinking back to, uh, we, we've touched on your, uh, we touched on your involvement with uh, your show, the agency and thinking of Bishop's Endgame and the historical period it's set in, I was, uh, highly entertained that that TV show actually comes up in the book. 
And I, I, two, two things about that. First of all, I wonder if you'd share some of your thoughts on, uh, on working it, weaving it into the story. But I'm also very curious whether uh, Michael Beckner might actually show up in the pages of Bishop's Endgame, perhaps uh, with names per- names changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, uh, it was so outlandish. I tell you, pitching that show, that scene in Bishop's Endgame, and it annoyed me so much I had to put it in the book, um, <laughs> to have the president of drama at CBS say, um, you got this name, Bin, Bin Laden, Bin Laden. And she kept repeating, Bin Laden. And you get what I'm doing? I'm going, no. She goes, well, it sounds like Aladdin. It's very silly. I'm like, well, well, that's a real name. That's a real guy. And, and then she said, that, and she didn't listen to me. And then she went on and her little assistant was like the little kangaroo in Horton Hears a Who, you know, popping up. And she goes, and what's this Alquiada, Alquiada, Alquieda? This is ridiculous. You got to invent new things. And I said, well, these are real. And the president said to me, if they were real, if this was a real person and Al-Qaeda was real, we would know about it because we have a news division down the hall. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to call you guys out at one point because this is the most idiotic thing ever. Yeah. And, and um, you know, so so when you see at the end of that book, and Aiken, you know, he has hypergraphia and, and asphyxia, and so he's putting a lot of diagrams. There's a lot of diagrams and stuff uh, in Bishop's Endgame, which is... is uh, is symptomatic of someone who's suffering from that. They add drawings to their writing. And so, um, but that invitation for the agency premiere is the invitation. I have it framed on my wall right here. I'm looking at it. Um, and so there we're, we were going to have our premiere at CIA headquarters in the dome. And, um, and I, you know, I framed it because it says, please RSVP by September 11th, 2001. And obviously we didn't have the premiere there because that came around. Um, and um, boy, maybe there I was a little bit too much on me and 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 um, needed to be on something else. You don't know. But it, it is quite ironic in a very sad and awful way because um, they got busy after that day. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it made its way into the book because I was annoyed. And, and yeah. that's just the way it was. Yeah, it was, it was a great scene. It was one of those, it was one of those scenes where you read it and it's like, this is almost too absurd not to be true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's a 30 years of Hollywood. It's, it's an absolute absurdity that working there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> one other thing I was really interested by, um, I think, I think for people who enjoyed spy game, one of the big moments that we all kind of remember from it is the rooftop scene where Bishop tears into Murr that you can't trade these people like they're a deck of cards. And Murr basically tells him he's, he's completely wrong. And it's, it's a, it's a fantastic scene between those two actors. What I found kind of interesting was then in the trilogy, there's a great scene between uh, Nathan Murr and uh, Silas Kingston, who's the leader, as you put it, which is a great turn of phrase. He's the lead, he's the head of the CIA's, uh, Counter Intel Janissaries. I love I love that expression. <laughs> but there but there's a scene between the two of them where Murr harkens back to that moment from Spy Game, and he basically tells Kingston, uh, Bishop was right. 
And I was interested if you could if you could talk a little bit about that uh, that change in Murr's perspective and how he comes to see uh, how how he comes to see that so very differently. I think it's with, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but right, for sure. That, so that scene happens in Aiken and Check. What I do with each book is each book goes back to that day at the CIA uh, where Bishop is captured in China and what leads up to that and what's really going on there. It makes it, I did that because it's fun. It's fun to, I think it's fun after you finish each book, go, oh, Shoot, I well, that's what was going on when they were talking about that, or that's who that guy in that scene was, and you get to see a totally different. It's a kaleidoscope; it well, shifts exactly, and then the movie changes again. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah. and you know, it's nice. I I, I can sell uh, uh, repeat viewers of uh, Spy Game and get my residual <laughs> uh, up every time. But um, so that happens right after Silas Kingston is one of those guys uh, in in the credits because they didn't they changed it up. They call in the credits. It's it's Doctor Byers or something. That wasn't that wasn't in in the script. It was Silas Kingston, but they they made it something else because they didn't follow that storyline. You know, he, there were a few more lines in the script that just didn't make it. I think Aiken's first name is Robert in the credits or something like that. It's, it's yeah, but that wasn't what it was. Yeah, I don't know why yeah. they changed that. I have no <laughs> idea that they didn't like Russ. Someone didn't like the word the name Russell. Um, <laughs> they took away his. He had in the script. He did. He had maybe. Five, maybe had one half scene with Muir that made you understand that they worked together. I kept taking it out of the movie. There were no books. There, the book wasn't published, so get rid of it. Um, but with with Kingston, Muir has to go through that day and has to make the decision to save Bishop. And in the it, it wouldn't work in the movie because we don't have any of the threads because it was a longer story. They left out of them. The only thing I wanted them to put in, and that Tony said we just don't have the time, is there's a confrontation from before Bishop's captured between Bishop and Muir over that burned flag we've seen, it, we've seen in his office in the film, where Bishop tells him, if I find out that you were behind Catherine being kidnapped, I'm going to kill you. And yeah. Muir knows, I've trained this guy so well, he will, he'll do it. He'll do it. He won't think <laughs> twice about it. And so that, so that when we watch the film, um, that is what he, the Redford character is actually dealing with. If I go through with this, there's a good chance I'm a dead man. And I think that would have, and so later when he is dealing with Silas Kingston in the third book, he is dealing with that resonating with him as well. And he's having to realize I did this to this guy. I yeah. did all of this to Bishop. And you know what? He was right. I, you know, in a human to human level, he's totally right. I'm moving policy forward. I'm moving my operations forward, but I am using him as a trading card more than, you know, I used him as a card. It's not that we used, uh, you know, the German as the trade playing card. Yeah, I made you do that, but I've used you. And so he has to admit to, to Kingston, you know what? That He's right. I'm wrong. And I can live with it now. I'm leaving the CIA and I can live with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do find it very, I found it very fascinating watching the film after reading Murr's Gambit and further looking back on watching the film after reading the successive two books of the series. They definitely tr completely transform how you view 
what happens in those in those scenes. It's, it's quite fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was fun. It. Uh, I don't think in the new trilogy I'll be able to pivot off that that event that much because <laughs> I've said sort of everything I need to say. But I have new events. Um, yeah. but I'm moving a little bit off the film, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. Tell us a bit about your plans for, uh, for this new trilogy of books. I'm, I'm very fascinated to see how, where you'll go with those. Well, what I found, what I found most interesting is, so this trilogy is three mirror books. And so it's going to be first person as the Aiken books okay. um, and yeah. it's mirror. It did take me a while to get into it because I realized that, as we all do, we we have our outer persona and the way we speak and the way we um, uh, display our lives. And I realized, and I tried to write Muir the way he is and behaves with people, his narration. I realized that's not really him. He's sort of like me and probably everyone else. There's an internal thing going on that's not, we don't share that. And so that, so we're getting a, a, a much more internal picture of Muir you think you know Muir because hey, he did that whole book, Muir's Gambit, and confessed everything to Ake, and I got him nailed out. You don't know him at all, and mm. and he's a, he's a much more complicated person, and um, and then the and he's dealing with he's devoted his life. This is before he gets to um, you know doing recruitment and and working as you know as an annuitant um, that we see him at Bishop's Endgame. This is this is he's. He's on the run. And by the way, he really screwed things up for the CIA and the U.S. government. So he's not anyone's favorite person. Um, so he's got that to deal with. So it's, it is much more, there's a lot more genre element in that part of it. Okay. Um, yeah. But he's also reflecting back to before he uh, met or recruited Bishop in Vietnam and dealing with that. The guy who formed that part of Muir in real life um, worked on something called Operation Popeye, um, which was cloud seeding in um, in Vietnam over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and and we we had the the clever idea of we'll just drown their food supply out, um, and and so that is the the shell operation that he's operating under. Um, so it's very early, uh, it's early sixty five, I guess sixty five to sixty eight in Vietnam and Laos mostly. It goes Vietnam. Laos and Cambodia. Um, the third book will get to the after the war and the killing fields in Cambodia. At the same time, dealing with really a much more of a um, sort of LA noirish, but set in the 90s with Muir dealing with sort of the repercussions of what he's just done in the film. Yeah. Um, so it would be in that sense, that part of the book is basically would be the sequel to Spy Game. If we followed yeah. Muir in that car out of the CIA, this is what happens. So that's kind of <laughs> nice. what that part is. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's, I... it's a lot of fun. It's tough. I'm also doing, um, I'm taking the kaleidoscope operation that really comes comes out in Aiken and Check and Silas Kingston and writing a set of serial books, short novellas. Um, okay. I'm going to do six over the next, maybe nine months and, and release those that follow Lynn, Lynn Kingston, Silas Kingston and that family. And they're, they're basically serials, kind of like what Stephen King did, what, 20, 30 years ago with the green mile, where just the short books I'm going to release that follow that. And that I would describe that as sort of the Soprano set in the CIA. <laughs> if, if you would, it's that nice. family. Um, but, but a saga, a family saga, yeah. and, and that, 
Um, that that's fun to write because it's not as uh, difficult as the mirror book, which is, is, yeah. is taking a lot of thought. Yeah. So I have to ask if there's a trilogy from Aiken's perspective and a trilogy from Merv's perspective, will there be a trilogy from Bishop's perspective? Uh, granted, I live that long. That would be wonderful. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a lot of work. Uh, I don't have much more to do. I have a lot of kids. COVID, most of my kids are grown up, but COVID brought us a, a, a surprise. Um, so uh, I'm still doing the daddy stuff. I've been doing it my whole <laughs> life. I'm I'm 60 now, and I seem to always have a, a little kid in the house. That distracts from writing. Otherwise, yes, there will. I think he awesome. is... He's the hardest character. He's going to be the hardest character to get under the skin hmm, of. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because it it I it's just not going to be um, fair to to people that read my books to just do an action book, which would right. be very easy to do with Bishop. That'd be oh, yeah. that'd be the kind yeah. of thing I do when when I write movies. I'm not writing books to do what I did there. So it's gonna gonna be figuring out what exactly do I want to say about the human condition through a guy like Bishop, and um, and that would probably take place. Um, in that period of time between Spy Game, the film, and Bishop's Endgame, and then afterwards, later on. Yeah, I can, def- but I can I definitely see that a lot out of room for I, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I know it's there. It's uh, it, You know what happened is the Mirror Trilogy, even though I think it won't, I know when I get to the end, it'll inform that book. So I, I got I got to I got to write those to know what I'm writing next. <laughs> For sure, yeah. I am interested uh, thinking of of the gap between uh, when you first conceived the spy game, when you first conceived of Mirror's Gambit, and then the film, and then now all these years later, actually bringing the trilogy to its conclusion, how difficult was it for you to kind of go back and build from that foundation all these years after you had, after you'd written, written the, the start of it? Well, the Bishop's Endgame, um, that I kept putting notes um, when I was ah, okay. working on my series, The Agency. And then I spent probably the best working relationship of my life. Although we didn't make any films, I, I worked on some of his, but I worked with Sidney Pollack and yes. I worked a long time with him doing writing work for him. Um, and we'd uh, developed an idea that was uh, similar to Bishop's Endgame. Um, he was a big fan of Spy Game. He wanted to, um, he wanted to make his Spy Game, which would be the next film. And we never did. Um, so I had a lot of notes from that. Uh, so Bishop's Endgame, I was able to do through through just a lot of stories and notes I collected. I, I meet and worked with so many CIA officers that would give me tidbits of things. They all went in the drawer. So that worked out. Aiken and Check, I was then left on my own. And I had <laughs> I, I I did have one uh one the the mirror my mirror inspiration didn't have anything, but I had a couple people that, that knew a lot about um, espionage against Cuba and, um, and Venezuela. And so I was able to draw from them and, and make that go that way. And I, and I'd worked a lot with them. Um, I was very close friends with Tony Mendez and John Mendez. We would spend some holidays every 4th of July we'd spend together. And he taught me quite a bit. I, 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 worked with him for a while. Um, and there. so I always wanted to do an OTS book. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so that's why, although the first book I dedicated to him, the third book really got into some of the people that I meet through that social circle of, um, 
of, you know, their friends that they worked with who I'd end up meeting with in, in, in social ways. And a lot of times meeting socially with, um, in a, in a kind of secure place where everyone's sort of in the know, you know, you get, you get a lot of information. There's freedom, a little bit more freedom to speak rather than, you know, meeting someone on an airplane yeah. and they're not yeah. going to tell you jack shit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, I, I think we really got a, a good thing. It's it's nice to talk about it. You know, it was preparing for this. I never really thought about any of these questions. I just write. I do what I've always done. So it was very nice to really organize my thoughts um, on what what the heck am I trying to do, and um, and and that's where I got you know to to realizing, um, yeah, that's why Aiken and Check ends up in the absurd absurdist fiction column and yeah. not. Yeah. Um, you know, suspense espionage. It's <laughs> it, it is. I write a different beast. I I write from the point of view, and and people that want to, um, I've had a lot of access, and I don't have any security clearance. People have asked me, how were you able to get this past the review board? I, go, I don't think of any, <laughs> any review board. I didn't sign the paper. They yeah. they <laughs> they asked me to, but they said you would have to. Then you couldn't take another salary from Hollywood. You we would be paying your salary, and I'm like. No, I got six kids. I I I got to get my Hollywood so, and I have two divorces. I need to make the Hollywood money, not the the government yeah, no. uh, the, <laughs> the government, government check. I'm happy to help. I'm happy to help, but I need to be a volunteer. Yeah. But and, and yeah. so so really that that is uh, that's my perspective. And I've been very blessed to work with a lot of real heroic American patriots and people from other countries um, around the world. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've created you've created a fascinating trilogy and uh, one that uh, really really reframes uh, not only each successive book reframes the previous one, uh, but they uh, that really reframes uh, what's a classic of the genre in spy games. So, yeah, I was I was thrilled to dig into it and enjoyed every minute I spent in the world. Uh, can't can't wait to see what uh, what comes when we finally get inside the head of Nathan Murr. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm yeah. feeling the same way as you. There's there's some places I mean, he's, he's popped up and he said, you were thinking that? My goodness, that takes me in a different direction. But that's the joy of writing, as you would know as an author. Sometimes yes. your characters take you places you didn't expect and you're better off for it. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Well, so one one last question before we go then. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? I, I have my website, michaelfrostbeckner.com. And uh, all my books are there. And I, I think I put stuff up about what I'm also working on, other things I'm working on. Um, my There's a nice bio there that, that covers my Hollywood career. Um, so I have that. I have Michael Frost Beckner on Instagram and on Facebook. I, I like to, I, I like, I didn't use Facebook for years until I started doing this. And it, it's quite, I've, well, I met you. Um, we've had, uh, <laughs> yes, made indeed. a lot of friendships and a lot of interesting people. So yeah, if you, if you search my name, I, all my different uh, social media and that sort of thing, I independently publish and, and, uh, that was a choice I made. Um, the, I have a good literary agent, but the, um, publishers really like Hollywood really wanted me to write different kinds of books. Um, more like my movies, more like yeah. in some of my other other stuff, and 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 that I didn't want to do. So, uh, so you're going to find me eas- most easily on BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon, obviously, yeah, and and the other thing. But uh, 
that's that's where I'm doing it and, and I'm enjoying it. Oh, and the last thing I, I needed to say is we just finished our writer's strike and um, I have uh, Beacon Pictures who did the original Spy Game. They share rights with me on, on uh, the film. Um, Universal uh, discovered that they don't have the rights. They, they have the right to shoot the script, uh, just shoot that script again. That's the only right they have. They thought they had more rights. They don't. Beacon and I share them. <laughs> and we do have interest in um, the television series, uh, streaming series, and in more than interest because I, I just turned in the um, the pilot script for Mirror's Endgame. So oh, uh, Universal is shopping that now uh, clandestinely to uh, the platforms to see who'd like to, to take that. They, Universal realized we can't give up. Um, we're not going to give away Spygate, even though we don't want it we certainly don't <laughs> want beckner and beacon pictures to run away with it so we are now we we partnered with them and um okay. uh yeah we'll see i'm you know beacon and, and i have a, a good relationship and, and and that series is is coming together so excellent we, we will see if universal can get it done we'll all look forward to potentially seeing uh these books brought to the small screen then <laughs> yeah yeah well this is this has been a pleasure and honor michael thanks for coming on coming on board uh, secrets and spies to talk about your work thank you so much for having me this was really really quite enjoyable thank you Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.